Uh, if you need a pencil, the ushers are coming down. You can just lift your hand and they'll hand those out. If uh, coughing up a lung from a flu like that is a sabbatical, I don't want to have, never, never give me one of those sabbaticals. That was rough, but that was two weeks ago. Thank you, Pastor Frank, for uh, stepping in. And then last week, uh, I was away with the leadership retreat. We have the most awesome staff and elders. Let me tell you, for real, what an incredible group of people. And we saw God show up in a powerful way, and we're so excited about a very big vision that God's giving uh, to our growing family, which you will learn about in the coming weeks. So delighted to be back with you this morning and to get back into our series, Genesis, the Gospel in the Beginning. Genesis 22 is the climax of the story of Abraham and Sarah that began when God called them out of their homeland to walk through the wilderness, and then we see all the ups and downs, successes, and some terrible failures in their journey and ultimately, father and son, step by agonizing step, up this mountain, the Mount Moriah, that he will later call uh, the, the Mount of God's provision, the Lord will provide. Genesis 22 is about faith being tested. And we could probably uh, go around the room all day and share stories of when your faith has been tested. If your faith has been tested, let me tell you, it will be. It will be tested. And so thankfully, we have here at the very outset of the, of the passage that this is going to be a test for Abraham. And it's a test that we can learn something from as our own faith is tested and stretched. Well, ultimately, after a test, your faith is either proved to be genuine or phony. Through a test, it can be proved whether your faith is the real deal or a fake. The author of the book of Hebrews, 2,000 years later, the Apostle James, they both look to this event as the defining moment in Abraham's life where his faith was proved to be true. And so it's about faith being tested. It's also a story of a son trusting his father. It's incredible trust between father and son. And so uh, maybe you are in the midst of a, of a need to trust someone in your life. And maybe that trust has been broken and that relationship has been strained and there's something here for us as well. The way God uses the relationships that we're in to stretch our faith and to grow us to be more like Jesus. So Abraham is uh, about 100 years old. His son Isaac is at least a teenager. We've skipped a lot in Genesis. The very sad story of uh, Sarah trying to uh, concoct, make something happen because she knows she can't conceive. And those among us who've, who've struggled with infertility, we know that great struggle. And here is this ancient family struggling with those very questions. Sarah sends her, her servant Hagar to, to, uh, to be with her husband. And, and a child is produced, Ishmael. And then Sarah in her great uh, grievance and jealousy of this younger, attractive woman who's, who's born her, her, her husband, a child. She cast her out. It's a terrible story. When you, when you read the Gospels, when you read the Genesis story of Abraham and Sarah, you see again and again how this couple does everything they can to protect Isaac. Everything that they're motivated to do is to protect this precious gift from God. It reminds me of what happened uh, in the news just recently with a scandal of parents paying crazy amounts of money to get their kids into top-rated schools. You've, you've seen the stories? 
unethical, immoral, whatever it takes to make sure that their child gets into a top-ranked school. Nothing's new under the sun. It's happening here. I think it was maybe about a decade ago, the phrase helicopter parent came out. Was it about 10 years ago? A helicopter parent, the kind of parent who's checking everything, making sure that their child's okay. It's okay we see that in the preschool because that happens they're just a little kid. But it's one, th- it's one thing when they're a preschooler. It's another thing when they're postgraduate and their parents calling bosses. This is helicopter parent. Well, there's a new phrase out there now, snowplow parent. You heard this one? Just imagine like a big blanket of snow and just plowing the, the trail, making sure the trail for their child is safe and, and everything's cleared for them to have supposedly a successful life. I heard that one of the uh, students that was kicked out of USC is now suing her mom for lost wages. Have you heard that? So crazy. So imagine the shock when God demands this sacrifice from Abraham. Look at the words again. Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. It means laughter is because Sarah was so beyond, beyond believing, laughing that God would truly bless them with a the child. Take your son, your only son, the one who brings laughter and joy to your life, Isaac, whom you love, and go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Every word must have felt like a dagger to, to Abraham's heart. Now, we need to understand a couple of things about sacrifices. This was a time and age when there were sacrifices given. Often it was uh, an animal sacrifice, maybe for um, a context of a, of a good crop. Maybe they were uh, raising a good crop. They wa- wanted to have a crop of, of wheat or pineapples or whatever it was. They wanted to have a healthy crop, so they'd make a sacrifice to one of their gods, a little g. This is what would happen in the cultures around Abraham, and certainly Abraham was learning of this kind of sacrifice. But at this time, there was another form of sacrifice that was commonplace, child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was commonplace at this time. This is when the need for sacrifice was ratcheted up uh, to the highest level. This was after there had been a warring party coming from another tribe and you needed the protection from the gods. We must give a sacrifice to be protected or to pay a spiritual debt. Or maybe there had been a a terrible famine or the the crops were diseased that year. We need to ratchet it up. An animal won't do. And so to appease the gods, the communities and the the nations and the tribes around Abraham and, and Sarah, they knew this to be the case. There would often be the demand of a child sacrifice. But Abraham loved Isaac more than life itself. Yeah, there, there, are, there are billions of parents on planet Earth. They love their kids, right? But moms and dads, don't you feel like you love your kid more than anyone else? Like you know a love for your child that no one else quite can understand. And Abraham and Sarah would put themselves in that category. Abraham would gladly sacrifice himself. Just take me, God. But not Isaac. Not the promised one. Not the one that through all of our infertility and struggle finally has come. The answer to all of our prayers, your promise to us, God. Not Isaac, 
the one you promised to bless not only our family, but all nations. And so this is the struggle that we see Abraham and, and, uh, and Sarah having. But as you read through the text, you read through the whole story of Abraham and Sarah, and I'd encourage you to go back and, and read those accounts. There's a, a question hanging out there in the book of Genesis. And the question is this. Abraham's faith has never been tested. Is he following God for God's sake or for the sake of the promise of what he truly wants, an heir, a son, what he loves the most? It's never been tested until this moment. Is Abraham walking by faith for all these years for God's sake or for the promise of a son? Really, the question is, to whom is Abraham ultimately committed? Where do his affections lie, his loyalties lie? Take your son, your only son, the miracle child, to the sacrifice. What do you think Abraham's thinking? Just imagine. How can the one true living God demand this sacrifice? I, I know you, God, to be, to be gracious and merciful and, and holy, but, but I deserve better than this. And then he'd back off and say, but, but I know that you're so good and you've been so patient with me. Do you ever have that kind of conversation with God? You go back and forth, say, God, you're so wonderful, but I can't believe you're doing this. You have a terrible thought in your mind about just, just trashing your faith and just walking away from everything, but you think, well, God's reading my mind, so maybe I can hide that, but he, he knows what's happening. Do you, do you get this? This is the struggle. But I think it really lands on this. I deserve better. I've kept the promises, Lord. How can this be that you take your promise to me away? So I imagine a, a wave of emotions crashing over Abraham. I imagine confusion and fear and anger and heartbreak and bargaining. Do we ever do that? We're going to bargain with God. If you don't do this, God, then I'm, well, I'm going to join a small group. I mean, that's a big sacrifice, but I'll do it. Do you ever do that? Like, God, if you answer this prayer, I'm, I'm definitely going to put 10 more bucks in the plate next week. We, we bargain with him. Imagine Abraham didn't sleep a wink. The text says he got up early. Why? Because he didn't want to wake up Sarah. Can you imagine the hell he would pay if she knew what was going on? <laughs> like, I tiptoe out. He, he didn't want to face that. It, it says here that he saddled the donkey. He cut the wood. He got his son, the fire, and the knife. He did it all himself, 100 years old. His servants are just standing there watching what is going on with the old man? What's happening? The text says it's a three-day journey. Really, if you look at the map, it would take three days. It's 40 miles from uh, Beersheba to um, Mount Moriah. That's a northbound through the promised land. So for three days, they're traveling through the very land that God has promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now, we think the test, the test of Abraham was that moment of, of reaching for and that, that wasn't when the test began. It began when they set out on this journey. It was a 72 hours of testing. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So Abraham and Isaac, father and son, 
Abraham carrying the fire and the knife. Isaac loaded down with the wood on his back. They set out and up to the mountain. Now, 72 hours have passed. What do we think is going on through Abraham's mind? What, what do you think is happening in his heart? The text gives us a clue. Look at verse 5. It says that he, he, he looks at his servants, and he says this, verse 5. We, we don't know anything else but this. And one other text, verse 5. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then what? We will come back. So stay here. We're going to go worship, and we, we will come back. Something has happened over those 72 hours to him, for him to get to that point. What is it? What happened in his mind and in his heart over those three days of traveling to this place of sacrifice where he would say, we will return. We will come back. Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us a clue. It says, Abraham, and Hebrews 11, the great uh, view of, of the whole chorus of, of men and women of faith, and, and, and Abraham and Sarah certainly are listed there. Uh, Hebrews eleven nineteen says, quote, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That's where he landed. God, God can raise the dead. Is that what's going to happen? In the, we know the passage. Is that what happens? No, so he didn't get it quite right, but he's, he's on the right track, isn't he? The Lord God made a promise linked to Isaac, sealed with a covenant that God cut. And so Abraham, what did he do? He used his brain, he thought things through, and he used his heart to make sense of it all. He relied on what he knew, his experience to be of the character and nature of God. He could reviewed everything that had happened on this journey that's exactly where we need to begin. When you are facing a test of your faith, where do you begin? Do you just throw up your hands and say, oh, no, think. Think it through and go back to the last place in your life when you knew what was true. I know it to be true that God is faithful. I'm going to go back. I'm going to remember and rehearse that moment. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to look to God's word uh, for guidance to see when God's been faithful. I'm going to rely on my friends around me, my Christian brothers and sisters. When have you seen God faithful in a test like I'm facing? And then you engage your heart to say, Lord, I need to pray. I need to understand what is happening. That's exactly what Abraham is doing. And we have the benefit of searching the scriptures, of prayer, to, to recall that truth and for that truth, that assurance to be made manifest in our life. So I think that's what happened over those 72 hours for Abraham. He exercised his faith. He was thinking, he was praying, he was feeling his way through it. And he says at the end to his servants, somehow, some way, we're going to return. Does this story make your stomach ache even though you know the ending? It's, it's awful. Especially when Isaac turns to his father and asks this question, Dad, the fire and, and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the offering? Like parents, we never want to lie to our kids, right? And when we, when we do lie, it's for their, for their benefit, Right? Right? We want to be truthful. And what's, what's Abraham do here? 
Is he saying a, a little white lie to protect his son? I don't think so. I think we have here a statement of faith. Look at verse 8. Listen carefully. He says to his son, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide. That's a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith, and it's an action of faith as he builds that altar. He puts the wood from his son's back onto the altar. Imagine the faith that Isaac has to put in his father to have himself bound and laid on this altar. Then Abraham reaches for that knife. And I just imagine it's slow motion. The Lord will provide, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. The greatness of Abraham's faith. This is why this is the example of faith. The greatness of Abraham's faith is not that he'd sacrifice his son if God asked him. The greatness of his faith is that he believed God would not demand such a sacrifice. In that culture and time when it was commonplace, his faith in action was not reaching for that knife. It was the assurance, the sure hope of something he cannot see but believe. This God, the one true God, the creator God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God would not ask for a sacrifice like this of those little itty-bitty superficial small g gods. And just as he's reaching for the knife, the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, drop, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know you fear God because you haven't withheld your only son. And Abraham looks up, and lo and behold, what's there in the thicket? A ram for the sacrifice. Father and son, prepare the sacrifice. Studying Abraham and Sarah's story these past few weeks, I've come to the conclusion that most of their life they did not understand God's grace. I wonder if the same is true for you. As I've wondered the same thing for me, do I truly understand, do you understand God's unmerited, unearnable favor? If you've ever thought or said, well, I deserve God's grace, then you don't understand grace. Listen, here's the, the key to a faith that's been tested and grows. Abraham came to the staggering realization that God's grace is all that he needed. Everything God had given to him, all the blessings, all the wealth, he realizes in this moment all he needs is God's grace. And only God can provide what we most need but do not deserve. That is grace. And he's so profoundly changed by this moment that he, that he changes the name of this location. He calls it the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. God is the promise-making, promise-keeping God, and he will provide. And then the angel of the Lord confirms the promise that we've seen again and again. Isn't it interesting that Abraham needs to be reminded of God's promises again and again? How many Sundays have you come in a row where you've had to be reminded, oh, that's right, God loves me. 
That's right. Grace is a, is a gift from God. Chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, and 22, he just has to keep being reminded again and again. Your descendants, quote, your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You've taken me at my word. You've obeyed me, Abraham. The, the, the choice of Mount Moriah was no accident. God never makes an accident, friends. The choice of this location was no accident. This location is in the city of Jerusalem. I've been there. Here's an image. It's the very location where the first and second temple were built, where heaven and earth meet. And this is called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, where Jews still gather and Christians are invited to, to come to pray. It's separated from men on one side, women on the other, to lift up prayers. And there's your pastor in 2015, a hand on the foundation stone of the second temple. And those of us that know scripture and want to engage in more study uh, in the year to come will know that God still has a plan for this very place and written on that very prayer sheet that I put into those stones. The place of God's provision where heaven and earth meet. And this location is only a stone's throw away from where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. Just imagine for a moment, if you're taking notes, think of the parallels between the story of Abraham and Isaac 2,000 years before Jesus and then the story that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks on Easter Sunday. The journey of father and son took three days. On the third day, he experienced the reversal from death to life. He believed that the Lord would provide a substitute. But God never intended for Isaac to be sacrificed. It's not God's nature to do that, it's God's nature to provide what is required. Michael even prayed that prayer. God will provide what he requires. That's grace. Far from approving of human sacrifice, God stopped Abraham in a culture where human sacrifice was commonplace. You see, we don't understand grace. We think there must be a sacrifice that's required. Okay, God, what more do you want from me to, to then eventually bless me. What, what, what do you want? You want more, you want more money? What, what, do you want more time? What, do you want me to name my kids some Bible name? What do you want? How, I mean, how ridiculous can we keep that going? Because some of us are here thinking, well, I don't know, God does ask us to do a lot, and there must be a quid pro quo. How crazy can we go? Oh, I don't know. How about child sacrifice? Well, that seems reasonable. That's not grace. It's the exact opposite. God does not demand you to sacrifice what you love. God demands that you rightly order your loves. And this happens when you obey his word and you engage with the Holy Spirit and you engage in Christian community. You think, oh, there are things that I love that are most important in my life, but I'm going to, I have to figure out my priorities. What's really most important, and some of us here think about it. what is your Isaac? 
What is that thing that is most important in your life? Is it in its proper place? God doesn't want Abraham's son to be sacrificed on an altar. He wanted Abraham to get his loves, his needs, his wants in the right order. All God wanted from Abraham, are you listening? All God wanted from Abraham was Abraham. All God wants from you is you. That's the test of faith. Are we willing to give our all in all to God? Let me ask it this way. We've got time. What motivates God to save people? What have you heard? What's our culture tell us? What's our religious Christian culture tell us? What, what motivates God to save people? According to the Bible, it's nothing found in us. The Bible says, quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When a holy God looks at sinful people, the only thing sinfulness motivates God to do is to judge them. God does not love us because we deserve to be loved. What's he saying? That doesn't sound right. That's not what I'm hearing on the Christian radio stations. I'm special in God's. God, listen, does not love us because we deserve to be loved. What do we deserve? If not God's love, what do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath. So why does God save people? Listen, why does God save people? Because God is love. And we are valuable, precious, beloved because God infuses us with value and graciously showers his affections on us. We go from being wretched to being his treasure only because of God's grace. That's what's so amazing about grace that we're missing. The, the Bible calls Abraham a prophet. And he, he was, but he surely did not realize how prophetic his words would be. Quote, God himself will provide the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A sacrifice was required, but Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son to pass the test. Why? Because God the Father himself would provide his own son as the substitute. And his own son would willingly and gladly carry that wood on his back and up that hill for you and for many and for the sins of the whole world. That is the gospel. That Jesus Christ himself is the substitute sacrifice for the world and for all who would renounce their entitlement, a sense of entitlement. Oh gosh, we are such entitled people. Renounce that and look in trusting faith to him and him alone. Abraham prophetically declared God will provide. Yes, indeed. God put, put Abraham, the father of faith, to the test to teach him one thing that all God wants from Abraham is Abraham. Some of the most painful tests in your faith journey are going to come when your Isaacs are being threatened. When that thing that you love most, that's the most important thing in your life, is being threatened, it might be taken away, it might be coming to an end or a close, those are the moments when your faith is most stretched 
to determine, am I going to trust God in this, or am I going to try to hold on to this thing that's most precious? That thing that comes first in my life, that's where the test is. John Calvin has a wonderful quote about faith. Here it is on the screen. He says, faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. And so, friends, God doesn't want your time, talent, and treasure. You've heard that a bazillion times, right? God wants your, God doesn't want your time, talent, and treasure. God wants you. Because if God's got you, he's got all the rest too. He wants you to walk and live by faith, totally sold out for Jesus, to know faith through grace. That's what he wants. Because if God has you, he automatically has your time. You don't need me to motivate you with the lights dim and, and a big shining light and a story about how we balance our time and how busy we all are and can't we carve out some time for Sabbath rest or could you possibly spare an hour next week to help clean the church? Forget that. If God has you, you're going to be praying, Lord, how can I use my time more wisely? How can I sort out our schedule as a family? How can I, in my retirement, use my time to serve you? If God has you, he automatically has your skills, personality, training, and experience. You don't need to go to some special class to learn about, well, how might I use my spiritual gifts? No, you're just going to be praying about it. You'll walk over to the next environment right after the service and talk to one of our counselors there and say, hey, I've, I don't know, I've got all these years of experience and training in corporate world or in, in the classroom or wh what have you. How might this be used for God's glory through our church? And Bill Weiss will be out there and say, I'm glad you asked. Here's your opportunity. You don't need to be motivated. If God has you, he's got all of your money. Jesus said you can't serve God and money at the same time, we don't need a, an eight-week series on stewardship. You, you'll just say, Lord, how can I use the resources you've blessed me with for kingdom purposes? There's no manipulation, no, no jerry-rigging. That's why when we pray, we say, if you're a first-time guest, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Do you know what's happening? Faith is rising in this church. In all these areas, time, talent, treasure, involvement, engagement, it's happening. God is drawing all these new people and families to this church. We, we cannot plan this kind of stuff. We hoped, and God exceeded our wildest expectations. So what we need, what I need, is for you simply, simply to walk by faith. If you want God to be first in your life, all you need to do is pray, Lord, show me how to be a good steward of my life, my resources. Give me a kingdom mindset, Lord, to value the things that you value. Help to produce fruit in my life. So here's the final question. Does God have you? Are you clinging on to those Isaacs? Let's go to prayer. And let's, as you close your eyes to pray, put your hands, uh, palms downward. So open palms downward on your lap, or you can raise them a few inches. Just the, the intention of that body movement is just to say, Lord, I'm just going to drop those things that I'm clinging to. I know somebody just dropped their phone. Maybe that's what you're clinging to. I'm just going to drop it, Lord. I'm just going to trust it to you. I'm going to lay it down at your feet. Turn your palms upward. 
position of receiving. God, nothing do I bring simply to the cross I cling. Uh, grant us a fresh, renewing, outpouring of your grace is undeserved, unearnable, and yet because you are love, because you've given us ears to hear and eyes to see, even when the whole world is doubting and pointing fingers, we receive right now in this moment your grace. Amen.